and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Today, I am joined with a registered nurse and end-of-life doula. Her name is Deanna Cochran, and she is going to be speaking at the Afterlife Awareness Conference that is happening this year, 2020, at Downers Grove in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And we are going to be at the Double Tree Hilton from June 4th to the 7th. And um, I would like to welcome her to the Path 11 podcast. Hi, Deanna. Hello. So I know that you have been a private end-of-life doula since 2005. You have been mentoring and training doulas and caregivers since 2010. You're the founder of End-of-Life Practitioners Collective, um, and the main mission of that is to provide a space where you can find each other to collaborate, to serve families and consumers, and that they can find practitioners to help them. You're Mm -hmm. also the founder of uh, Quality of Life Care, which was created to bring awareness, information, resources, Resources and support to people and their families living with life-limiting illness, as well mm-hmm. as to the circle of the family, their friends, and trusted advisors. I know that you're also a Reiki practitioner, a therapeutic touch practitioner. You have lots and lots to offer us on this call today. So I just um, want to welcome you. And I, I really love speaking about uh, the afterlife, end of life. Uh, the first time I think I was introduced to the whole concept of the end of life doula was last year. Uh, Terry Daniel had brought in some doulas to the Afterlife Awareness Conference, and I didn't even know that this existed. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, how did how did you start this, and how did you get into wanting to, you know, work with people who were getting ready to transition? For me, it started in nursing school in um, in 1998, and when I there was a rotation that came up, our community rotation. And before that, I was doodling on notepads, coming up with business plans for remodeling and gardening. I was just going to, I was so not present in nursing school. And then they said, second semester, they said, well, you have to do a community rotation. And there was a 40 of us and there were only two hospice uh, slots. And we would spend uh, three or four weeks riding around with the hospice nurse. And something inside me just went bonkers. And I had to have one of those uh, slots. And I just petitioned, I begged, and I, I just nearly lost my mind. And other people also knew I needed to have that. And I don't know why, because I wasn't very engaged, you know, but um, they knew, they said, she needs to be one. Everybody just <laughs> let me have one of them. And I was sold from then on. I just knew that's what I needed to do was work for hospice. So everything I did from that moment on was with a complete passion and everything because I wanted to serve the dying and I wanted to be good at it. And it was, you know, I just wanted to do the best I could. So that's how it started for me. And then I worked oncology for a little bit uh, just for the purpose of going to hospice. And then very quickly within my first year of nursing, I was a hospice case manager. And when my mother died in 2005, so then several years passed, and my mother died in 2005, what I knew was that the hospice had a pathway 
people knew of hospice. It had been around for over 20 years. There was at least there was a awareness of it. People were out educating about it. And I knew there was a pathway. What there wasn't is an awareness that people do not need to suffer prior to hospice entry. It's a huge, mm. huge awareness that I had from the oncology floor, seeing so many people suffering so um, hard. And then I would receive them in care at the hospice soon after, like the same people that I served on the oncology floor. A lot of them came into our hospice and, and it was the same person, the same symptoms. It was just one day you say you're um, in acute care, one day you're uh, termed terminal, and now we can treat you with medications and therapeutic ways that will reduce your suffering tremendously. And I, I couldn't wrap, I couldn't accept that. I didn't feel that you had to be dying to be comfortable as you face your dying or as you face your recovery, whichever way it went. It wasn't right to me inside my heart that why weren't we connected here? So when my own mother um, got diagnosed with a terrible gastrointestinal cancer and I was beside myself because I knew I wouldn't be able to um, help her in the way I helped others with that kind of cancer. Um, I was devastated and I knew that she would not have to um, suffer until she got to hospice and my mother did not want to come to hospice. She was 61. She had just come back from Machu Picchu. She was uh, rollerblading on Tampa Bay Boulevard. Uh, she was no way near saying, oh, I got this diagnosis. I'm going to go on to hospice. And so that was a terrifying thing because I knew what the world was like here in this intersection. So um, we created our own palliative team, which I didn't know there was a movement beginning already about pre-hospice palliative care or palliative care prior to hospice. I didn't know that then. So what I did is just we pulled everybody together, her general practitioner, my sister's a nurse anesthetist. She had surgeon friends. We had holistic uh, practitioner down the street. Um, everybody pulled together. I had a host, the biggest thing. This is the biggest thing. I had a doula next to me who happened to be a hospice nurse. That's what she really was, was my doula. And she was a hospice nurse though. And so she's the one who actually guided the show. Every morning, my mother died within five weeks. Every morning I would tell her what was going on and every day she would say, oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, talk to your doctor about this and that. And so that's how we did it. Mm. Yeah. That's and, and I know, and, you know, reading a little bit about your story too, that with your mom's diagnosis, like you had just said, it was, uh, you know, pretty tragic for you guys because from diagnosis to, uh, her passing was only five weeks. Right. Right. And, you know, she, we were planning to go to Brazil. There was a healer down there. We were planning all these things. My mother was not going to give up. And this is the thing. I know there's this big push and everybody wants everyone to feel sacred about this and they want everybody to accept it. And, you know, it's a natural life cycle. And, you know, all of that is true. However, it is for each person to interpret that and engage with that and and live with that as they die. And so some people, and we're wired to survive. We're wired to want to live. Mm. Most people, unless you don't want to live, right? But most people do. And so to think that we have to wait 
until you're ready to wave the flag to have quality care that will keep you comfortable as you plan to live. And you may die. And, and you know what? Either way, we need to have full support. We know certain things are going to happen as someone's facing a serious illness. No doubt they're going to have uh, fears, existential pain, physical pain, perhaps. Family dynamics are going to be insane. Everyone's scrambling. There's a lot of unknowns. And that's what palliative care takes care of. So it, when someone gets a diagnosis with something very serious, you can have a care plan that takes care of your diagnosis that is m ensuring that your survival, making sure we're doing everything so you can survive. And at the very same time, palliative care should be begun for a care plan to handle all these things we know that are going to come down the pike as well. Mm. Not just start it when you're about to go into hospice. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I do. Actually, you know, what you're talking about resonates uh, pretty loud and clear. A friend of mine, his mom just recently passed. And it was really interesting because, you know, the mom was in the hospital and it was kind of quick and kind of sudden. And, uh, you know, they ended up finding that she also had cancer. But, you know, the doctors in the medical wing there basically said to the family, well, there's nothing, you know, this is terminal. There's nothing left to do, but we'd like to start her on radiation and chemo. Wow. And, you know, luckily the family was like, absolutely not. You're telling us that this is terminal. There's nothing left. Like we want to bring hospice in and allow mm -hmm. her. They really wanted to try to get her home. Um, mm -hmm. She wasn't able to make it home, but um, still, you know, like hospice came in. But I mean, I'll tell you, you know, I know that there was an interaction between the family and the doctor. Like, how yes. could you even suggest this? Yes, we you know? had that same <laughs> We had that same interaction and my mother was nearly dead. She would have, she would, she died about a week after this visit, but she insisted on going to her oncologist one last time. He was young and I was sitting across from him with my nearly dead mom with her head on my shoulder, which she is not, she wasn't a touchy feely person. She was law enforcement, retired law enforcement. And for her to put her head on my shoulder was sheer. She couldn't keep her head up. And so she's, sitting with me in there and he is telling us in 18 months, we're going to do this procedure. And in about four months, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, wow, do you not see dying happening right here? Right. I, I, my mother is laying here. And so I, I know my mom, I know that she wouldn't want me to fly across the table and, <laughs> and strangle this guy, which that's what I was about to do. And she, and so I stayed calm because she kind of leaned her head hard. You know how you do, you kick someone under the table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she kind of leaned her head down hard on my shoulder. So I, I kept it together, but I kept insisting. I said, look at her. I want you to look at her right now and tell me she's going to be here in 18 months for that procedure. And then I, want, I insisted on a hospice referral and I insisted on morphine because she was in tremendous pain and trying to hide it. Mm. And he wouldn't give me either one. And then finally, at the end, he said, I don't agree with this, but he gave me a script for both. And from that day forward, um, we were in good hands with hospice, but because they could take care of me and my family. I told my mom, you've been having hospice care, because at the time we didn't know to call it palliative care prior to hospice. Like all I knew is she was getting the good care of hospice. 
before mm-hmm. hospice. And it was because of that that she didn't spend one day in the hospital. Mm. It was because of that she could keep stay home, eat what she wanted, have her dog. She loved this little Maltese, Maltese, Maltese what is it? Maltese, yep. <laughs> yeah, she was a Maltese, but we, oh, Matisse, his name was Matisse, called oh. him Matisse the Maltese. But anyway, um, she could be home with all of us. See, that that was the thing she wanted. And the thing is, is she would have been in the hospital uh, maybe the whole time because of symptom management that our doula slash hospice nurse who happened to be a hospice nurse kept her out of the hospital. So I guess when I, when she died, what came back to me very strongly was the memories of my own home birth. I had a home birth in 1991 of VBAC, a vaginal birth after C-section at home, my second child with lay birth midwives. And they changed the whole trajectory of our whole family, of our lineage. Mm. What they brought back not only was the empowerment of a person whose body was actually working, but medical intervention took over and caused cap, you know, havoc. But they they empowered us as a family and they taught us things that I never knew because our family line didn't know it. What was passed down from my grandmother to my mother, my grandma, you know, all the way down. There were certain wonderful things and there were certain other things that weren't. Um, you know, conducive to a very strong, you know, a bonding of children to their mother, like, you know, we were given bottles and stuff like that. So um, these midwives helped transform our whole lives. And I credit them for my two daughters being as strong and amazing as they are. Um, They changed everything by changing our perspective of what was normal you know, take off those little mitts on their little hands. I said, no, but she's going to scratch her face. And they said, that's okay, sweetheart. This is how you clip her nails. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, okay. And, you know, things like that. And, oh, you know, you, there's so many things I could share about that. But what the connection that happened was I want to do that for people at the end of life. I want to change their whole future around dying because if what they've experienced in the past was um, mediocre to horrible, there's a better way. There's a beautiful way. There's an empowered way. And so I immediately set out. I felt hospice was good. They had a pathway. People knew how to find them. And there was millions and millions of dollars spent in marketing and education for physicians and, and consumers and everybody to get it. What people didn't know was this other part I just told you. So I made it my mission. It's been ever since my mother's death is to bring this part of the equation out. And in the process I was, I guess, channeling my hospice nursing and serving privately. Um, I was educating about this care that we should be having from day one of diagnosis, not just in hospice. And I was also serving people. And, uh, and I stumbled into blogging. And I'm very naive around internet and stuff like that. I just thought it was the Austin American Statesman person. It said personal blog for Austin. So I just thought I was blabbing in Austin and I was super scared because I worked in Austin and I didn't want anybody to feel I was uh, being critical and I didn't want to alienate the medical community. And I, I just couldn't get to why were these things not connected? And I was trying to not to do it in a way that was, um, inclusive and respectful and all of that, not being afraid 
of it to hurt people's feelings and stuff, but I didn't want to alienate. There's no power in that. There's no power in divisiveness. And to me, I wanted everybody joining together wouldn't have these aha with me. And how can we fix this? Well, so as I'm blogging, I'm talking about how I serve people. And then I'm talking about these things. And, um, People were writing me from all over the world. I just couldn't believe it. And then they wanted to know how I was doing my service. And at the time, you know, I called myself a death midwife at the time. In 2005, when I looked around the internet, the only thing that I saw pop up was the Shiroeske Foundation had a doulas to accompany and support. And they trained uh, individuals, they still do, uh, to go visit, a person will go visit somebody like friendly visits once a week. They don't do vigil care, but they do the friendly visit care as they're dying people who have no one. That was the closest thing to what I was doing, but I wasn't doing even that. I was doing vigils and I was doing palliative consultations. I was doing all kinds of things that they weren't doing. So there was no collaboration at that point um, with them. So I just was doing my thing. And it just took years, but as people uh, found my blog, they would reach out and we would talk and, you know, what do you call it? And, oh, I'm calling it this. Oh, and I realized, you know what? I'm not going to say death midwife. I feel like it needs to be um, end of life a doula because people aren't going to resonate with death. They're going to, you know, reject that. And, you know, we just were trying to figure out the whole way what to do with this, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what you're talking about, it sounds like part of your mission is, is that this needs to be offered at the time of diagnosis. I mean, that's, that's what I keep holding on to, too, with this conversation. Um, and, it, and it seems like that you guys have a lot of work to do to get that in there. I have yet to see or hear, you know, any people that are close to me, my clients, or just even personally, just thinking about the people that, uh, have passed away in my life again. It's like, I've, I've only heard of this for like the past two years. Um, so how, okay. So how let me, let me make, make that distinction yeah. about the end of life doulas and what I'm talking about. Okay. So, so what I'm talking about, what I've been talking about with you is palliative care, education and awareness. And as you can see, and you feel, and you have your own stories, you can see the need and the powerful role that will play. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. So, um, I'm now, uh, that's all I was about. <laughs> that's all I was about. But because I was sharing on this blog about how I was also serving, people wanted to do what I was doing. And at the time, I call, like I said, I called death midwife. Then I thought, you know, I'll be end of life guide. I'll be end of life midwife. I chose end of life uh, doula because in my mind, those birth doula, I mean, the birth midwives that attended me, they, I didn't have a birth doula. They weren't around then in 91. There wasn't a big movement of them. It was the lay midwives and their apprentices. So I didn't know about doulas, but as the years went by and the birth doula movement kicked in, I started realizing, you know, those birth doulas, the midwives have the heart of a doula. They are more, they just do more medical stuff. They are more skilled and they're more trained in areas that the doulas are not. And so in my mind, I felt everyone had the doula heart. 
that was doing that service. That's where we come together. No matter what you call yourself at the end, we have the same doula heart. And so I chose early on to call myself an end of life doula for that reason, because I saw people were calling me and I heard the passion. I heard the skill. I heard the beautiful things they were doing. I heard their advocacy. I heard their intentions and they were wanting me to put like a, you know, a a wand to say, okay, you're qualified now. And I said, I can't do that. That's not for me to do. I'm hearing it in you. You are a person who needs to be with others and help them and empower them to have a beautiful dying or an empowered dying or get helping them not fall through the cracks at the very least. I can hear it in you. So they kept saying, I don't know. I need to know. I said, just work for hospice. That's not enough. I'm already working at hospice. They're not showing me how to do what you're doing. And so that conversation I had with people for about four or five years. And I, and a friend of mine one day said, Deanna, you're saying no to God. You're saying no to the universe. People are asking you for years to show them how to do what you're doing. Who, who are you to not do it? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, because I thought I'm just a nurse. I'm just a hospice nurse. I'm not a board there. I'm not a regulatory committee. I'm not a PhD. I don't even have a master's. Who am I to, to, to show? And she says, what you're doing, you're not telling them those things. You're showing them practically how to do what you're doing. And I thought, okay, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. And so I created my program. I took a year and just wrote down every single thing I ever learned that I could think of as a hospice nurse and every single issue I ever dealt with, which, you know, takes, it would take a year. And then also as a private end of life doula, everything, cause that's a whole different set of things as a private practitioner in this. So I wrote all that out and I put together my program, which addresses everything you could possibly imagine if you're going to be a private practitioner walking alongside a person in their family uh, from every angle. It's very thorough. It's not a complete deep dive into each thing because each thing could take weeks to, and there's volumes out there written about each thing. So there's no way I could do a deep dive on each thing but you will know everything when you're done. And so that people really love it. And I have a personal transformation part of it. And that part has to be because I learned that and I got transformed doing the work, Mm -hmm. working with so many people, hundreds of people since 2000 is what showed me things about myself and showed me things about the way I dealt with dying. And, 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 and when you're a longtime hospice employee, you, you do that deep dive because you have to, to survive your work. And so I, thought, how can I help people access those awarenesses that took me so many years and so many families to get? And of course, it's not a perfect translation, but it is a very powerful system that I had no idea was going to be so. (laughs) When I started, you you don't know what what you're doing when you start out. And it's just through feedback and years of feedback that I uh, found out that it did it did provide that for people. So, and then I have another whole layer of actually building your practice. So, people are needed out here because of the coming, um, you know, what people are calling that silver tsunami, which means we're going to have more people over sixty five than we are going to have under eighteen mm-hmm. in just ten years. Never happened before in history. 
Also, there's a, a report I just read recently that 15% of palliative physicians will be retiring out, along with a percentage, a significant percentage of palliative supportive care folks. We know that um, that is not a good combination of a rising, huge influx of need and a decline in any way with palliative care in particular. So we know that nurse practitioners will be stepping in. We know that physicians will be working their butts off. Um, but we also know that present day healthcare is really taxed and burdened. And we don't agree with how to spend our money around there. And there's so many gaps in care that we already know. So doulas, what's really cool about doulas um, is this. In my program, I train very strongly in palliative care prior to hospice, because I know <laughs> from my experience that most dying happens before you ever get to hospice. So the latest stats in hospice, when they do the NHPCO uh, uh, reports, facts and figures, 46% of people, uh, Medicare deaths are on hospice. And so that means what, 54 are not. Well, there's uh, violent death, there's accidents, there's all kinds of things going on, but there's also um, a lot of illness, deaths from illness, and they're dying not on hospice. And there's lots of reasons for that, but this is just the way it is right now. Also, the people that are coming in, that 46% that die on hospice, most of them come in seven to 14 days before they die. Well, dying happens, they're dying before they get there. <laughs> One of the biggest problems of hospice uh, that we try to educate about is that not problems of hospice, hosp problems of awareness of others to refer earlier is that they don't refer early enough. Hmm. That, that, that oncologist that was sitting across from me with my mother, he didn't recognize dying. Either he didn't recognize death in my mom or he couldn't see it because it was too painful for him. Or maybe he didn't have enough time to discuss that she was dying. And I've heard from physicians that all three happen, and I'm not blaming them. This is our, this is our present health day, uh, healthcare structure. We don't build in the time that we need to have with people. Mm -hmm. So this is the reality. So instead of uh, harping about reality, let's see how can we fix it. So what I train the doulas to do is to see dying not just on hospice. So they're going to see it everywhere. And when they hear about people uh, stumbling and you're going to, I train them how to see the crisis before people are verbalizing it. They, they start to recognize, oh, I, I, that's what was going on over here. And, and so that way they can help people die well before they get to hospice, get them to hospice sooner. That's how I train the doulas in my program is to, do what you can use these methods that I've shared with you to educate about it, to get them here sooner, you know, talking to their physician and is this what you see? And hospice will help you figure it out. If you're, a, if you qualify to be on hospice service and you're no physician in your circle is going to give you uh, permission to come in, they will figure out a way if you're appropriate. Some physicians I've, I've met with them. I've seen them. I've talked to them over the years, very few, but they're there refuse to refer to hospice. They have something inside of them that just won't, won't do it. And, and I'm not sure what that's about, but it's very few. And then there's most of the physicians I would say would fall into, they don't think we're there yet, 
or maybe they want to try one more thing, or maybe the family is, is really, uh, they're feeling pressure from the family to try one more thing, or maybe they just don't recognize dying when they see it. It looks different uh, for different people. And maybe my experience as a hospice nurse, I've seen so much dying. I can see it anywhere, right? I can see it. And maybe when you're in the hospital and people are going up and down and up and down and in and out and acute care and surviving and wow, that was a miracle and they're surviving. You know, that it's not just all uh, one, there's, it's, there's no simple answer. Right. And now your method is called care doula method. And yeah. can we talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, I'm sure that there are some people, uh, you know, from our audience that are listening and maybe they have been looking for certification to get this uh, done to become uh, an end of life doula. And yours, you know, on your website, it says it's proven and tested. It's a proven and tested training model. So how has it been proven and tested? How do you know that your method works? because of the doulas <laughs> that have left my program. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, you know, what I, the, it is what I described to you, this three-tier approach, this, mm -hmm. it's really a weave. The weave of, of information, of personal deep journey and visionary, um, like intention, writing out planning. The weave that I have in that process you cannot just get information and plan a practice and have it be all cerebral it won't work so what i know you can't just do personal journey work and think you're going to come out and have a practical practice you know there's several trainers out here and everybody i'm sure is wonderful and and we all have a piece that's really good and i think this is mine um, people will, a lot of people will take different trainings. And what I hear often for mine is, wow, you really pull it all together. I'm the pull it together person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, and I don't say that, I mean, they're telling me that. So I go, okay, so something's working. So when you get your, I do, everybody gives me a, an evaluation. And, and so I want them because I want to keep making it better. And where I'm falling down, I try to fix it. And where I let somebody down, I say, sorry, let me try to make this better. Right. So I'm not saying I don't have my faults, but what we do is that I know the interplay and the, and the connection and the weave that has to happen for a single person to bring this desire that they have that's in their heart and their spirit. And they'll cry with me on the phone. In 10 minutes, we're both crying. Yes, they've got the passion. Okay. <laughs> so how do we connect that passion to a real practice out there? It, there's a lot that needs to happen from there, to, from, a to, from A to B, from A to Z, or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen is a study and an integration of what's been true for you and what is true in this field. That's my part, right? To give you the reality of what's in this field right now and connect it inside of you with your experience as we're working on your plan, which comes from deep inside, from your joy-filled place, we build your practice from there, not from the outside and what healthcare is doing in their system, their 24-hour care system, and how they meet needs. I don't go from that direction. So I have a whole direction that I come from that people, when they leave, they always, well, most people say they feel clarity. They know what they're going to do. They know what they're not going to do. They feel confident. And see, where the confidence comes in is because you know yourself. 
the awarenesses that my program is called an awareness training. My program is called Accompanying the Dying, a Practical Guide and Awareness Training. And I picked every single word on purpose back in 2010 because I was like, is it this? No. Is it that? No. Is it this? Yes. It's this? Yes. Okay. This is what I'm going for. I'm not saying, I'm not vetting you. I don't care if a prisoner takes my program. I don't care if somebody with a sixth grade education takes my program. I don't care about being uh, esteemed around this. I just want you to know the material. <laughs> I want you to be able to help somebody. If what I can do transforms inside of you a confidence that will make you step out and have the confidence to just be with somebody and be their witness and be their loving friend, whereas before you were too afraid then that's a success. And that's all I care about. So that transformation means the most to me. And that, and, you know, back when I started, I was the first program for lay people. There was programs for healthcare professionals, you know, Naropa and Yopaya and Rigpa and um, Meta, you know, Frank Ossiseski. There were all those amazing, our leaders, our elders were bringing programs, Ram Dass, for 30 years before any of us present day people came around. But what I feel that I brought to the table was for the lay person. Yeah. Healthcare professionals, I'd say, gosh, about 50% of my students are healthcare, ex you know, experienced healthcare professionals, therapists, shamans, people that know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But why they come to me is because they want that piece. I have a very particular piece of bringing the practical accompanying the dying during those last days through um, burial. I have a very practical piece there that helps them empower and enact their own vision, like bring that what they're dreaming and thinking of. How do you integrate it with what they already know to bring something uh, that people can understand in a way to serve that that's my brilliance. That's where my little thing is. <laughs> Everybody's got their little thing, their brilliance. You know, each one of us, I don't care what you do for a living. You, you have that thing inside of you that sparks in someone else. I can do this, or I'm a good person, or I really am smart, or I really have had this my whole life, or, you know, we, we each have that for each other. And that's why we need to do this together. There's no out being out there on your own, spinning around in your own practice. That's hospice does not do that. Hospice is a team. So another thing I do is create this team environment. It's not just a way to leverage my time. Um, you know, there are a lot of cynicism around what we're doing out here. Um, this is a human skill that anyone can do. You do not need a certification to do it. You can hang up your shingle. I'm an end of life doula today and you do not need anybody's stamp of approval. I've been saying that since 2010, but what's happened is everyone's requiring a certification. People want it. The doulas themselves want it. They go, I don't, I'm not a nurse like you. How are people going to know? I at least know this much. Um, healthcare has come in and I understand who are you? Who are you to serve anybody I might send to you? What do you know? Um, so there are other forces out there that have demanded the certification process. So what the community, I guess, as time has gone on, um, what the community, and then I, I was a later adopter of this, is said each organization will certify according to their own standards. Okay, I can agree with that. Before that, I was giving just certificate of completions. Mm -hmm. 
And then when everybody started demanding, I mean, we had very um, big debates about it is because I want people to feel empowered in their own self. You know, if you want to have a certification so that a healthcare professional will hire you or refer to you, I get it. But if you need the certification to feel confident inside yourself, that's the part I want to work on with you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. I want you to know you're coming to the table with all of you. I'm a 58, I'll be 59 year old woman. I have a lifetime of experience with my children, with my community, with my church, with my family, with all the different hats I've worn in my lifetime. I've, I'm not a stranger to death. I'm not a stranger to grief. My heart's been broken, slammed to the ground. I have gotten back up many times, just like every one of us. We bring all of that as we walk with others. There are some awarenesses, though, if you want to do this professionally, that yes, I think you need more training. So that's where I stand with that. If you have a supportive group around you of professionals that you can journey with as you serve the dying in a private practice, okay, but you're still in a collective of sorts. You've created your own collective if, and you have had lots of experience behind you. But if you're a person that doesn't have lots of experience behind you and you don't have that kind of collective that you're creating with you, you really need to come into a family of people like an end of life doula community of, that you have a mentor that there are people ahead of you. That's what hospice does. Mm -hmm. You have people with licenses coming into hospice uh, and they, they don't know dying either. We don't know dying till we get to hospice. We know our little field before we get to hospice, but when we get to hospice, it's like, okay, let's wipe that slate clean. And we have a new imprint for you. We have a new way of li living with, or do dealing with people who are living with their dying. It's a whole new thing now. And so even people with licenses need to be with others and mentor and have mentors and be in team. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so your, your course is about a 30, it's 32 hours. It's a 32 hour course. No, it's no, um, no they, they are lifetime. They, they are with me for life. They can um, it's, there's a practicum, 32 hour practicum. There's eight weeks of, of mentoring two hour sessions uh, each week. They have it, most people finish between four to six months and they have my support and our team support every step of the way. So they're not just at a weekend. And I also have a three day weekend uh, that's not required, but the, our students uh, can come to that. And so they're supported every step of the way. Um, with us. Oh, it's okay, not gotcha. just, I, re I read that wrong. Yeah. So it's oh, no, four, okay. four course assessments, a final essay, and then a 32 hour practicum that they do. And then yep. you also have the in-person training that people can come to and you do that uh, yearly. Yeah. October is going to be when we do it this year. And what I decided to do, I've done different things, you know, the program has evolved and I've tried, you know, we're talking about adult learning and adult education and I have curriculum developers. I've had uh, people edit my just so for adults to absorb the best way possible, the quickest and get them out there. And so I've tried different things. And so people really want to be 
together with their teacher and with their mentor. And so I, I just been hard to figure out how to do that because I do speak around and I do a lot of training and, and I decided I'm going to commit to a weekend, a three day, full three days every year. And we're going to do experiential things, things that you can't do online. So online, they have the full course. They don't need me to repeat that part, but in the three day, we're going to be doing the things that we are going to be practicing with our families and things for our own self journey and our self care and things of community that you cannot do online. And so it'll be very powerful. So our students can come every year if they want to at a very low price And the public, the general public, if they want to come, they can come. It's of course a higher, much higher rate because it'll be their step one into our certification process. If they want it, if they don't want it, that's fine. They don't have to continue and they'll have a really powerful experience of tools they can actually use today with their people that will be in their life. Not everybody wants to be a professional doula, but everybody that has this passion to serve um, is are very inspired to learn what are the things I can do that would be helpful here, you know? Yeah, wonderful. Well, I really look forward to meeting you in person at the Afterlife oh, Awareness too. Conference. And yeah. uh, for our listeners, if you'd like more information, you can go to qualityoflifecare.com. Vienna has all of her information on there, how you can get certified, where you can register. And you are going to be speaking on Saturday at the Afterlife Awareness Conference from 9 to 10, I think is your slot on the schedule. Is that right? Yeah, Terry wants me to give kind of like a State of the Union address for doulas. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, so I'm going to uh, give people an update. You know, I'm very honored to be chair of the NHPCO End of Life Doula Advisory Council and stuff. And so in that, and then I was a founding member of NIDA, National End of Life Doula Alliance. And I, so I, I'm in touch with a lot of the leaders and things we're trying to do on a national level. And she, she would like a status update. So that's what we're going to do. Wonderful. And you also have an Amazon number one bestseller in three categories, Aging, Death and Grief and New Books. And the title of your book is Accompanying the Dying, Practical Heart-Centered Wisdom for End-of-Life Doulas and Healthcare Advocates. So people can find that on Amazon. Yeah, thank you. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much for um, spending time with me today. Thank you for asking. And I'm a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on 
on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today. 